I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. To readers of the Capital Research Center, or Influence Watch, none of the findings reported by New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz and stay-at-home mother, children's book editor, and political commentator Bethany Mandel in their book Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation, will be that surprising. Capture of institutions ranging from school boards to the American Academy of Pediatrics by left-of-center interests will be familiar. But the details and personal accounts Mandel and Markowitz summon to warn parents about the direct challenges by left-wing interests of their children's well-being are alarming. Joining me to discuss the book is co-author Bethany Mandel. Uh, welcome, to the, welcome to the podcast, Bethany. Uh, before we begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what you do? Yeah, yeah. So I think that you just gave a good sort of uh, elevator pitch, but um, I am a mom of six homeschooling them, and I'm also a contributing writer for Deseret News and uh, the editor of a children's book series called Heroes of Liberty. And I write, you know, across the internet for the New York Post, New York, sometimes, yeah, the New York Post and Fox News most, most frequently, and The Spectator as well. So uh, you and Carol Markowitz uh, wrote uh, Stolen Youth. What is it about? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's basically about sort of, you know, there's been a lot of conversations that are really valuable and, and really important about sort of how the woke reimagining of our society has uh, arrived on college campuses and in academia and uh, in corporations. And, and all of those things are um, alarming and part of a sort of national understanding of this moment that we find ourselves in, this sort of precipice. But um, there hasn't been enough of a conversation about how this re- reforming of civilization uh, in our society has impacted our, our children and sort of the youngest children, not not people in high school or even college, but folks who are even, you know, just learning how to walk and talk. And so we really wanted to take a deep dive um, into the myriad ways that um, this ideology is uh, impacting childhood um, from all different directions. What like single finding probably stood out the most to you, uh, whether you found it or, or Markowitz found it? So, I mean, I, I spoke to a lot of people over the course of researching this book. And to me, what I found most alarming was the fact that almost no one wanted to talk to me on the record because they were afraid for their livelihoods and for their families. And so um, a refrain I heard, for example, from people in the medical profession was, I'm genuinely um, I'm genuinely afraid. This is a moment where I worry about providing um, adequate patient care. Um, and I feel as though I am forced into silence um, because of uh, a number of different sort of forces there. Yeah. When, when, when you guys, when I, when I was, um, when I was reading the book um, and I was reading, especially those parts, it really called to mind uh, Vaclav Havel's Power of the Powerless, uh, the in which the, he has the green gro- the metaphor of the green grocer who puts the workers of the world unite sign in the window, even though he doesn't believe it because that's what he's supposed to do. Yeah, you know, t- to what extent do you think that the rise of this ideology and it's now uh, spread out into the broader society and to the very youngest? Uh, to affect the very youngest children, uh, do you think that it's 
just people swimming with the current versus what they yeah. sort of sincerely believe. I, th- I think it's a lot of that. I think that people are ultimately um, and understandably uh, good people and reticent to be labeled as a bigot or a transphobe or anyone who hates other people. And so I think that the framing of the left on these issues has been very smart. And if you do object to any of this sort of reimagining of our society and rewriting of our history and of our present, um, if you do object, the message is that you, there's something wrong with you and, um, and there's something hateful about you. And well, I think well, and, 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 you've, and you've are... experienced that on this book tour, you were on rising <laughs> a couple of days ago now, as we record. And, you know, as sometimes happens when you're, in a, uh, as I am experiencing right now, as I try to articulate this, uh, your 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 lines escape you, and so one of the hosts asked you to define woke, and it took you a, a little bit to yeah to to come up with the line, uh, and of course that made you the main character of Lefty Twitter, not for the first time, yeah. uh, and you know I think that really illustrates how the side who have been called woke. Uh, want to debate the definition rather than the impact. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is that they um, they sort of see themselves as the the saviors of our civilization, and that they are making our our society more equitable and more fair and more just. And they are protecting all of us from systematic racism and 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 all of these sort of modes of oppression that are, um, that are invading all of our lives. And the reality is, um, they're not, and, um, they're, they're able to achieve a lot of their success, uh, on an interpersonal level, but also, you know, in the wider world through force. Um, and I just happen to be <laughs> the punching bag of the day. One, one might, one might, one might, one might give a definition of woke, sort of going off the sort of Ibram X. Kendi-ish definition of racism, that racism is prejudice plus power. You might call it political correctness plus power. Mm, that's powerful. It's as, as yeah, sort of I mean, as a definition of woke. <laughs> when you're woke, you're aware. And so they they want us to all be aware of all of this, all of the ways in which we are oppressed and are oppressors um, and just sort of make us atone for that oppression uh, as a society and also for individuals. And so there's, there is absolutely this element of uh, wanting to make people suffer. And that is part that, that suffering and, and, is part yeah, of the, and, and, the goal. and all, and all, right. And all, like all revolutionary movements, the, the impact of the ideas that are said to work in theory is not what a normal well, person would hope. Uh, what yeah. were some of the impacts that you guys found? Yeah, I mean, I think the, there's there's so many sort of areas in which, and, and a lot of rabbit holes we went down. Um, in the area of media, that was one of the chapters that I wrote, we are left with a uh, an entertainment structure that is not as entertaining as it used to be because they're they're trying to hit DEI boxes while at the same time trying not to offend anyone. And if you think about sort of Friends and uh, Seinfeld and all of those really classic, amazing shows, um, they w- would never be made now. Um, and so we're, we're seeing that happen uh, in entertainment, both in literature and in visual 
media as well. Um, another sort of impact of this is in the medical field. Um, I gave one example in the book of a medical conference where because one of the panels was not sufficiently diverse, um, they canceled, there, there was a, a woke Twitter mob that canceled the panel. And that panel was about sort of the most up-to-date information about care for babies who were born prematurely. And those present at that conference that year did not hear that information because they canceled that panel. And so, um, you know, that's one way that, you know, every single doctor present at that panel now has not enough information at their fingertips when they are making life or death the life or death decisions. Um, and so that, you know, there's that sort of impact that um, has a real, you know, scary, you know, whatever. Um, and then yeah, yeah. A, and, and a, a scary result. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing a lot of headlines now about the mental health crisis that uh, teenage, mostly girls, but teenagers in general are facing. And a lot of that, and I spoke to, you know, teenagers who, um, who are just now in college, um, and they, so they're in their sort of late 18, 19, early 20s, and they said uh, that college for them um, was scary. They were scared of stepping afoul of uh, of a of a mob that you know for us as adults and all, and all we this can... was going on as and all this was going on as the COVID restrictions were yeah. in force and it was it was all seems to have was, supercharged yes it was all sort of linked and you know as adults what happens when when people are mad at you it doesn't matter but when everyone on your college campus is mad at you that's really scary because it's you know it really is your entire life is your college experience you live on campus um your friends are all your college and, and friends it's, and, and it's so, different it's genuinely different being a professional paid opinion haver as opposed yeah. to being somebody who just you know you, you don't want to say just wants to get a real job but just wants to no, get a absolutely. real job i mean i have I have the luxury of, I don't mind if I'm canceled and I've been canceled a number of times already for my opinions and that's okay. And honestly, in some ways that's beneficial because more people are hearing about our book and more people, yeah, I, I, this is probably help. like the, the cancellation that I'm now facing over that TV blub, uh, is probably helping book sales and like, you're welcome everyone. Um, but, you know, that's that's a luxury that I have that most Americans don't have. Um, if a doctor is canceled, that's their that's their livelihood and that's their practice and that's their future. And it's also their past. You know, they've worked their entire lives for this. And it's something um, that I was told verbatim by one of the doctors I spoke with. Um, she wouldn't even put anything that she said to me in writing because she was afraid. And that 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 has echoes of sort of Maoist, Marxist uh, history when someone's too afraid to tell you what they think in writing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, your your co-author Carol Markowitz openly compares it to mm-hmm. her family's experience growing up in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um so you know, given the damage that we know that this ideology can do to children uh, that it can do to regular people. How do you, how does, how do we break the veil that, you know, if, if you believe, I guess, as I do, that it's all sort of built on a foundation of sand and the expectation that 
you know, the great wave of cancellation is going to to come down upon you. So you put the sign in your in your shop window. How do you, how do how do you live under that regime, for lack of a better word? So I, I spoke to one professional who works in um, like trying to be careful not to give too much identifying information. So I'm, um, she works in sort of the health field um, in in a government capacity, and she is the only person in her department who doesn't put her pronouns in her signature. And um, she does that very intentionally um, because she does not want to be party to that. And just because she has to live under this paradigm doesn't mean she has to participate in it. Uh, And that's basically what she told me. And so I think that that's one sort of powerful way. But she said she, she wonders if at a point her supervisor will say something and she has to decide. Um, And she has been, um, trying to build uh, an alternative working arrangement for herself that is more private um, so that if and when that happens, she feels emboldened to stick to her principles. Um, And I think that that Mm -hmm. is the best that we can ask of everyday Americans to try to stick to their principles as best they can. We're I mean, I mean, I, I've already dropped Vaclav Havel's name. I'm now going to drop Alexander Solzhenitsyn's name. Yes. You know, let uh, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me. I just named two extremely prominent dissidents. Right. And and we can't, and, you know, not everybody can be a dissident, you know? Yeah. So how, how do we get to that point where you can live not by lies, but also not require the courage of a Vaclav Havel or a... Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So, I mean, I think that what this woman is doing by not inserting her pronouns in her signature on her email, it sounds very silly and very small, but she's making a statement that's very clear and, and her colleagues have not, not noticed it. Um, and people have spoken to her privately, um, and said like, Oh, I noticed that you didn't, um, that you didn't do that. Um, can you share with me why that is? And she said, that's just, um, you know, it's apparent because my name is Brittany. It's not her name. Um, but you know that I'm a woman and I don't feel the need to affirmatively declare my pronouns in order for you to know how to address me. And, um, and that I hope gives her, I mean, I haven't spoken to her in a year and a half since I wrote the book. Um, I hope that that emboldens some of her colleagues to maybe drop it from their own signatures and to um, quietly not acquiesce to this reimagining of um, of what it means to so, don't. So it's don't it. put the workers of the world unite sign in your shop window. Yes, yes. And you don't have to put you don't have to put another sign in your sign in your store window, but you don't have to put that hammer and sickle there either. So for, you know, in, under the conditions of this regime, how should parents approach protecting children or blocking for their children some of the worst successes of this? So, I mean, I think, so Carol and I, at the end of the book, we wrote two different versions of the conclusion based on our, our own personal belief on how to move forward. And it's different for the two of us. We're two different human beings. We're not like monolithic 
humans that have the same thought process, which is why we took turns writing chapters and we made very clear who wrote each chapter. But Carol's sort of solution is we live in this world and we have to figure out how to live in this world. And so her children, she has three of them, two of whom go to public school. One of them goes to private. Her kids watch everyday media. Um, They have one of them has a cell phone. I think two of them have cell phones. Um, And she has very open and honest conversations with her children about both what they believe as a family and also what they don't believe as a family. And I think those are two very separate and very powerful conversations. Uh, In our family, we're more of the Go-Galt model. Uh, My kid's favorite actor is Robin Williams uh, because they watch Jumanji and Flubber and uh, what was the other one recently? Jumanji. Oh, Mrs. Doubtfire, which again, one of those movies that would never be made now. Super problematic. Couldn't couldn't be made today. (laughs) No. So, um, and so we, again, try to have those open conversations as well. Definitely affirmative conversations about what we believe, but I try to shield them um, from as much as I can being a political commentator who sometimes takes calls in their uh, earshot. So am I perfect? No. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but we, um, we kind of, I think the most important thing is to know the enemy and to have that in your mind's eye and to, you know, go into the library and not let your kids have free reign. This is, you know, a story that I told, like, before you check out a book, go on Amazon. You have a story about that in the book. Yeah, yeah. Go on Amazon and look at the one-star reviews before you check out a book and before you let your kid read it. Um, Don't have, don't watch a, a movie as a family. Um, without checking out Common Sense Media, for example, or just watch Blubber. That was a big hit with my kids this past week. Blubber was very funny. Um, And so, you know, I'm sure Patch Adams will as well. Um, But these are, um, you know, at the end of the day, every individual family has to make decisions that make sense for them. Um, Carol, her sort of perspective is like she moved, she picked up her family and moved from Brooklyn to Florida because she wanted to protect her children more from sort of the effects of this. After, after it must be said, having been a major defender of living in New York City for a very yes. long time, yeah, publicly Mrs. and prominently. Miss New York. Uh, she had a very deep affinity for her hometown and felt betrayed by it and left. Uh, because she prioritized her children first. Uh, and I think that is uh, admirable and admirable. Um, and so that was sort of her solution. Our solution is we homeschool. Um, and we both think the thing that the other chose is the harder road. I think her picking up and moving was really, really hard and not something I felt capable of doing. Um, and she feels like homeschooling is really, really hard and not capable of some she's not capable of doing that. Um, and so we sort of chose in our own personal lives, like what we felt we could do, uh, to best serve our, every member of our family, both, you know, Carol and me and also our children. Um, and you have to, you have to have that, um, you have to have that sort of understanding that, um, you know, every decision won't be perfect. Uh, and we talk about that in the book, that there are decisions that the two of us made that we wish we had a time machine to go back in time and, and change those decisions. But that's just being human. Like every decision you make won't be perfect. But um, we have to go into it with our eyes wide open. And that's why we wrote the book, because we wanted to open parents' eyes. Well, uh, before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to promote that you're, you either have been working on or are working with or? 
Um, I'm an editor for the children's book series, Heroes of Liberty, in which you will never have to pre-read the content that comes to your door, uh, heroesoflibertycom But I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm promoting a book that is now a national bestseller, according to Amazon, um, which is really exciting. And we want to get the word out among parents. Um, you know, this is a book that is readable for an everyday mom or dad. That's a message that we've gotten a lot um, and means a lot to me because um, it's, it's, I mean, sort of like harkens back to my, my brain flub on rising. It's a hard topic to discuss and, um, and it feels very academic and it feels very in the weeds, but the reality is it's not. It is something that is impacting all of us, uh, whether we know it or not. And it's definitely impacting What, what happens children. at Wellesley does not stay at Wellesley. Exactly. Exactly. And so we wanted to write a readable book um, that helped arm parents with information and, you know, tools to fight back. And I, and we achieved that. All right. Well, once again, the book is Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Childhood and Indoctrinating a Generation. Uh, thank you to the book's co-author, Bethany Mandel, for having joined us today. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>